Now you can show your support for Inside MusicCast by making a donation at InsideMusicCast.com. Your donation will help us to continue producing future episodes of Inside MusicCast and keep Inside MusicCast radio streaming 24-7. You can also receive special Inside MusicCast merch, such as t-shirts, stickers, and coasters for your support at various levels. Find out more at InsideMusicCast.com. From all of us at Inside MusicCast, thank you for your support. Inside MusicCast rings in the new year with our first guest for 2023, guitarist Dean Parks. Dean is no stranger to liner notes geeks around the world and was homegrown in the state of Texas. In fact, he was a member of the One O'Clock Lab Band at North Texas State while in college. Whatever it is that's in the water at North Texas, he drank it, along with other top musicians who have come out of that amazing music program, like David Hungate, several snarky puppy band members, Nora Jones, Jeff Coffin, Don Henley, Lyle Mays, and many others. Fast forward to today, and we find Dean still engaged with contributing his talents to new projects from Lyle Lovett, Leanne Rimes, Herbie Hancock, Diane Warren, and so many others. This only confirms that after decades of playing LA sessions, Park still remains an A-list guitarist. His iconic work for Steely Dan, Al Jarreau, America, Streisand, and so many other great projects speaks for itself. Today, we'll help fill in some of the gaps of his amazing career. Inside MusicCast is glad to welcome Dean Parks. Hey, Dean, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah. Nice to meet you guys. Nice. Good to meet you as well. Finally. <laughs> yeah, finally. And Happy New Year. You know? Yeah, Happy New Year, Dean. Oh, Happy, happy New Year. Year. You know what? It's, uh, it's, it's been one of those years, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's time for a fresh start. <laughs> it's right. Time for a fresh start, for sure. I think that every year is that way from now on. Yeah, that's true. It might be, you know. Um, thanks again for taking the time to chat with us. But um, also, we'd love to give a huge thanks to our L.A. and now Toronto correspondent for Inside Music Cast, Don Brightup. So, Don, yeah. thank you for connecting us to, to Dean. Yeah, thank you so much, Don. Yeah. Um, Dean, let's, let's start off first, you know, with, with um, getting to know you just a little bit. H- how are you doing? I mean, now that, you know, 2021 and 22 are over and, you know, here we are in, in the new year, uh, you know, are, are you optimistic for a good 23 for you and, and music? I'd rather talk about more about music because we don't know what anything else is going to pan out to be. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> music uh, music keeps on keeping on. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm overall uh, sad about the fact that music is free. How about yeah. that? Yeah. It's, I mean, that's the good news and the bad news because, first of all, if I want to hear some Saws player from 1943, mm-hmm. I can find it and hear it right away. I don't have to go to a record store. I don't have to buy a whole CD, folk CD, that I don't even know if it's well recorded. Yeah, You've just got... I mean, education-wise, it's just fantastic, and uh, instructional stuff is fantastic. However, you don't have to buy physical media, meaning there's no income, there's no money coming into the system yeah. from people that are enjoying the music. Uh, I mean, there is, uh, you know, you're, uh, we're all subscribed to an internet service and, and various, uh, you know, cable. Uh, entities and you know that it's not like it was though is is my point and the i've been in the recording industry and that you know it helps if people are going to sell copies Mm -hmm. and make money and that makes the budget big enough that they can hire us guys um still it's still a necessary uh Thing recording, mm-hmm. uh, even though there's not much money made off of selling uh, actual recordings, um, people show up at concerts because they've heard the new stuff, and it's a way to can keep connected with your crowd and all that stuff. Sure. So, yeah. uh, so there's so there still is a recording industry, but it's uh, shaped differently than it was. Yeah, it is. It's a. It's become sort of a double-edged sword, like you say. It's a, yes, streaming's a wonderful thing, convenience and all that. But you do you lose the essence of the hunt, you know, in the record stores and to to test yeah. drive. Remember when we used to <laughs> play the records and test drive them in the you know whatever yeah. record shops we used to go to yeah. and and hunt for them. And, I know. Yeah, uh, that, was, that was that was fun, but it was expensive too. It was. Yeah, yeah. you it had was, to choose. You didn't. You know, it's uh, liner notes were. A real boon 
to yeah. um, people looking for, like, for, you know, I, I love Chuck Rainey's bass playing. Let, sure. let me go and buy, go to Tower Records and get an armload of <laughs> Chuck Rainey throughout the years, you know, right. and you can, you can find that uh, from the time they started uh, giving album credits uh, uh, till the present time, you know, you could... You could go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, and money then came into the whole industry because CDs were being sold and so on and so forth. Right. Well, one thing they probably have in common that at one point we spent so much time, all of us, on records that we were at one time broke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> spend, That's right. You know, you, you spend your pay, paycheck on, the, you know, the next five albums for the week. You know? I've still got like yeah. a second mortgage from 30 years ago. <laughs> <on it>. oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but guess what? That, that uh, paid you guys were supporting the music industry and making it possible for things to get right. better and better and better. Right. Um, you know. That uh, made it possible for artists to pay studio time in great state-of-the-art uh, studios that were always getting better, the best yeah. new consoles and best new recording media and all right. that stuff. Sure, sure, so. sure. Hey, Dean, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and we have such such a short amount of time. How how do you put in four, you know, to five decades of great work in, in our span? Yeah, right. How, exactly. do, you, how do you do that? Yeah. You know. So let's uh, yeah. quickly um, uh, cover maybe some of the beginnings where 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 uh, as we get to know you a little bit with our audience. Not that we don't already, but um, you know, you you were at uh, North Texas State. Now we all know that a lot of major talents come out of that school over the years. So. Um, yeah. But it was actually in the in your backyard, right? Fort Worth, Dallas. Uh, yeah, uh, it was uh, very convenient. It's an hour drive from Fort Worth. Yeah, and uh, it's a great way to go out to college. And you're still, for me, it served me in that I was I had been in a little weekend rock and roll band mm -hmm. since I was twelve or thirteen, and those same guys we were still doing weekend gigs, so I could go away to college. You know, <laughs> move away from home, yippee, and yet uh, go back to my, uh, you know, home base musically yeah. <laughs> and learn all the records that were coming out and play them live and, mm -hmm. and have a great time doing that yeah. uh, in rock and roll and keep that going. There wasn't much rock and roll in, in college music at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a great jazz school. So yeah, yeah, I was I was a jazz snob during the weeks and the and the during the week and the, on the weekends I was a rock and roll yeah. guy. So I mean today's reputation with the school is is pretty much you know it's it's off the charts. But back then it was it was renowned also, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of a lot of great players showed up there from all over the country, and uh, that's was the strongest part of it mm -hmm. because you uh, they had six or seven big bands and they were really of very high quality you could just to uh, you know audition into one of those bands mm -hmm. you're already on the road in a way you know you were you were learning how to do pro level gigs even though it was slightly less than pro maybe but uh, yeah. yeah but but you know because of schedules there were th some of the best players were in the lower bands too because they didn't couldn't get a clear spot at one o'clock or two o'clock mm -hmm. so uh, you had great bands all the way through and uh, and you get to hear how good it can sound you don't know how it you know how it feels to be in an ensemble that's kicking at you know at a good soulful high level and uh, yeah, it was a great it was a great gathering. You know, Dean. So many guys that we've talked to, our guests have obviously, you know, and mm -hmm. especially in the era that that you sort of came through in the seventies and eighties, mm -hmm. they they all ended up in L.A. because that was the place to be. And I was always curious about what led you out of Texas to L.A. You know, was it a particular gig or project, or did you just go because you knew that's where it was happening? Well, you know, it was a conversation that I'd had with. Uh, I was starting to get uh, some work there in Dallas. It's a, it was the regional uh, commercial center, you know, Jingles, uh, Chicago and Dallas for the Midwest. Uh, a lot of work there. So um, there were seasoned musicians, and I was just breaking into that because they were kind of uh, retooling for rock and roll. You know, album yeah. rock was now mm -hmm. happening, and they needed uh, uh, guitar players that uh, – were comfortable with them. They could teach them how it goes in a yeah, way. Yeah. And uh, 
after one of these sessions, having a conversation with one of the guys, a couple of th three of the guys in the parking lot, Whitey Thomas, uh, uh, Ernie Chapman, uh, the bass and keyboard, mm -hmm. and they said, you want to do this for a living? And I said, yeah, I do. And um, they said, well, you should probably think about going to one of the big towns because uh, the industry, when they had all moved to Dallas, was uh, very hot on the station break IDs, and that was all invented in Dallas and everything from all, all over the country, all over the world, mm -hmm. singing call letters, that kind of thing. That was a huge industry, and it all came from Dallas. Yeah. Um, big bands. They had two big bands working uh, you know, all day, every day. And uh, that had started to fall through. When album rock came along, that was no longer hip, and so those... Those orders didn't come, and so it had been, you know, they had moved their families there. They said, you should go to a place that's going to hold up um, throughout the years. L.A., yeah. New York, Nashville. Yeah. Um, and so that I chose L.A. because I like variety. I'm a big proponent of uh, you get one, and one genre feeding the other. Uh, yeah. You know, you get the solidity of rock and roll, uh, put that into your jazz playing, and then you that's a very good thing and put the knowledge of chords and stuff from jazz into rock uh -huh. uh you know you just made both more interesting and yeah. uh and uh so i, ch I chose la because there was more variety there i couldn't envision how to go uh, session to session in new york you know with acoustic you know several guitars and a yeah. Amp and, you know. Anyway, it was a pretty pretty easy choice, and I got uh, a road gig that would kind of help me in the and our rhythm section from the 1 o'clock band in uh, L.A. We all wanted, we all figured we needed to go to L.A., and so a road gig is was a good way to get us there because you can move, and it doesn't affect your work because your work still, they fly you to the first gig, and then you're, Busing or flying to the other gigs, and uh, and meanwhile you're setting up camp in L.A. Yeah. When, on, in the off times, so that's how I chose L.A. over the other towns, and um, I knew I wanted. I kind of knew I wanted to do this kind of work as soon as I knew there was this kind of work. <laughs> I was, yeah. I, was lis yeah. I was listening to a jingle. The place I used to, I always had a reel-to-reel -reel recorder. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd go to buy new tape, and it was a place called Clifford Herring Sound. Um, it was a hi-fi store. But they also had a studio right underneath called Sound City. Uh -huh. And they were doing commercials. And I was... And they had a studio upstairs, too, and I heard a playback of one of these commercials. It was small woodwind section and rhythm section and singers, and it was all just perfect. Yeah. Great playing over the biggest hi-fi system, of course, <laughs> you can imagine in those days, you know, a, a, a control room. So I thought, well, oh, I, I see that. That's a nice thing. I was reading about uh, the Glenn Miller Band and how those guys became studio musicians when the war was over and they wanted to get off the road and they just did, you know, New York was the big town in, in, the, in yeah. the 50s, you know, that was yeah. a huge, huge recording yep. town. And it was still big when I came to L.A. as well. Yeah. Uh, so, so I knew I wanted to do that kind of work if I could. I mean, it sounded like such pristine musicianship. You never really know whether you can cut it, you know, uh, mm -hmm. how, how would you know that without, you can't tell the quality of the players, yeah. how, how, you know, what kind of rehearsal time did they get, you know, and, right. you know, all this, all the stuff. Yeah, you, you know, a second ago, you mentioned how you like the diversity of doing different genres. And yeah. I was actually looking through your discography the other night, and I noticed, like, back in 71, probably a couple of your earliest sessions, you played electric jazz fusion guitar for Jeff Sturges and Universe. And then, oh, yeah. and then I think in that same year you played like this strummy, uh, rhythmic uh, acoustic guitar for Helen Reddy's self-titled album. I think the song was called "More Than You Could Take." And um, you know, in many ways, when I, when I think about the rest of your career, you those two sessions really, um, uh, you know, th those two sessions really sort of showed what was to come from you in terms of your diversity and your, your different styles that you that you play. Yeah, I. Um you know, I've kind of always found something 
in each role to learn from, to, you know, like it, it was working Motown sessions and there was a particular drummer that in the early days and he was, wasn't very consistent. We do 20 takes, 25 takes mm-hmm. to get a good take. And so here you're playing the same part because your part has been been established and kind of approved by everybody, and that's what you're going for on the take. And you do it 20 times. Well, you know, how can you make that interesting? And I figured out ways to just, uh, you know, where are you planning it on the beat? Where maybe leave out a little inner stroke to make it feel better? You know, you get a – if you just <laughs> think about it, there's – you can – you can hone in on the the process, or play a play a pass with just fingers, not not a pick, even though it's a rhythm part. And I liked playing drums as well, and kind of considered rhythm guitar mm-hmm. like a percussion sure. instrument with notes. So anyway, uh, I figured uh, you know good effort in any area will spread to the other areas. Mm-hmm. Which is true to a degree, and to to another degree, uh, you get into a genre that you haven't done in a while, and it is a little bit of, uh, you know, getting used to it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, most most of our listeners, Dean, will probably uh, would recognize you as a guitarist because we all do. But you know, and if anyone really looks at your discography back in the in the seventies, you you were doing your your share of writing, and in fact, I'm going to pull this one out of the uh, out of the out of the dark here. In seventy five, you actually co wrote a tune. It was a big tune for the Jackson Five. It was called Dancing Machine, and um, you know yeah. how you know back then were you did you were you dabbling in writing? Were you a writer? Were were you collaborating with uh, labels uh, for certain? For certain people, how did you get yeah, the writing? You know, gigs? Uh, the, the way that whole thing came about mm-hmm. was, um, you know, I hadn't really honed in on writing, even though I did. You know, this group that I was talking about that yeah. uh, came up with uh, right. in Texas, uh, we were writing songs and you know trying to do that thing, and uh, so I'd become a writer, and I'd also gotten into uh, for our big band in high school writing arrangements for the big band. Hmm. Um, so I, I figured out how to do that in high school. So I, I was kind of a writer yeah. uh, all along. Um, and so um, an acquaintance of mine, Don Fletcher, had just gotten stationed to the L.A. area in the Navy, and uh, I believe it was. And um, he, he and I used to sit in at the same jazz club. He was a vocalist, and I, was, I, I would sit in on sax. Because uh, I played at North Texas, I was mainly playing in the sax sections, um, even though I played it, uh, guitar in, in one of the bands as oh, really? well. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's kind of where I learned to read is in, uh, on the woodwinds. It's a good way to learn to read in an ensemble where you got <laughs> yeah. other people playing the same rhythm and you know immediately everybody knows if you if you goofed. So the pressure... <laughs> To not goof is is good, and it's hard to get on the guitar. It's hard to yeah. get that opportunity. Yeah. Um, so I was I was a writer, and I I knew about song crafting and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff from my experience. And uh, so Don came, and I had just kind of gotten on the main roster of Motown musicians. They moved their operations to L.A., and yeah. um, so I was I was doing two or three sessions a week at Motown. And I had a favorite producer there, Hal Davis. And so I, Don Fletcher said, you know, you want to write, get together and write some stuff. I had a little four-track Sony. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, I think we ought to write stuff for Motown. I'm going to take them into Don Fletcher. So we, he came over one Sunday. We sat down and wrote a tune. I took it in to uh, Hal Davis, and he said, that's very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have anything... For, you know, there's not a spot for this, but keep them coming. So every Sunday we got together and wrote, and then uh, one, one, uh, one week, uh, several months down the road, we uh, uh, Hal said, you know, Michael wants something a little more modern. You know, a little bit more like Stevie is doing is what he was thinking. And uh, so with that in mind, we wrote a song called "Music Machine," yeah. and uh, took it in, and Don. Uh, I mean, uh, Hal really liked it. Um, 
and then Hal and Don worked on the lyric to change it to a dance tune, Dancing Machine. And, uh, and it, yeah, and they, it ended up being, I think they're probably their best selling single. Wow. When they were, because uh, Michael split off into on his own yeah. soon after that. Shortly after, yeah. But uh, yeah, that so that that was a definite target, and uh, fortunately the target was hit. You know, was yeah, it was uh, very productive. And then I Don became a staff writer there, and I kind of wasn't that interested in do, doing much of it. I wish now because. Dance Machine is still paying. <laughs> yeah. It would have been nice to uh, put a few of those, yeah, few no kidding. more of those into the <laughs> yeah. into the mail mailbox. Uh, right, mailbox thing. money. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's great. <laughs> well, you know, we've we've spoken of your discography already a couple of times, and it's of course it's so vast and has such great studio work that you've done. And, and looking back, you know, on your work over the past nearly fifty years, we all know that the seventies and eighties were. You know, they're really sort of a golden, the golden years in yeah. for LA studios, mm-hmm. and the LA session scene was exploding. And you know, you were right in the middle of it. So tell us about that vibe that was going on in LA, and for you at the time. Yeah, well, there was yeah, there was a lot going on in uh, TV and in films and records. Yeah, I became uh, for I don't know what reason. I guess because. For whatever, I was getting called for a lot of record dates. And the lead time on sessions back then was like a month, a month and a half, two months. You'd have to book everybody, yeah. get that locked in yeah. to get the studio you want, the engineer, mm-hmm. all the players. And uh, movies were generally a week or a week and a half. You'd get the call to do something, you know, okay, either that week or a week and a half later. And I ended up not getting that many opportunities to be on movies because I was already block booked. You know, they would book, uh, you know, a whole rhythm section for a week, double sessions. Yeah. And we'd just uh, be at a studio, set it up the first day, and then you the, that setup would be done and it'd be easier to crank out the album, the tracking part of the album. They didn't really mm, usually worry about overdubs that much. Okay. Uh, it was tracking and trying to get as many songs, good tracks on the songs. And then sure. you'd book time later on. They'd pick and choose who they want to come and do overdubs on the various uh, tracks you had. So, uh, but the tracking session thing was, uh, it was intense. And uh, there was, you know, still there were, I guess the Partridge family was still working when I first got to town. I met Larry Carlton. He was in on that. And mm. he said, oh, that's great. You get paid on TV thing. And then they always make an album out of it. So you yeah. get repaid <laughs> as a, for an album. So that's what he liked about it. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit disappointed in the music adventure, someness not on those things. And uh, was really relieved to get into the Motown a group of musicians because yeah. that was totally more fun to do. I mean, it was when I say fun, it was like a factory. I mean, you you think uh, you know all of the stereotypes of uh, well, you know, you got a whole week to get a drum sound, and you know, you get to pick and choose, you know, and try different solos and try different you know instruments, and it, that's not really the way it worked. Um, yeah, I guess they're, they're hiring us, so we're getting paid basically by the hour, even though it's in three-hour increments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the union was strong in all of that, so it was all being watched, and uh, you know the meter was running, and uh, everybody's careers on the line. Uh, players, arrangers, producers, artists—you know—could be their last record. Who knows? Yeah, right. And so every, tensions are high, and you really need to get it going now in tune mm-hmm. yeah uh, if it's, it's not the right sound the next guitar needs to be you know don't wait around too much to get that next guitar going mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it was uh sort of intense from that uh kind of pressure but you do develop um what i call a kind of a bulletproof attitude toward the take when the when the red light is on yeah. someone said 
music is the only other profession where the red light means go. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when when you first when you first start in the uh, Gary Herbig, I think used to say that. Um, <laughs> but uh, th- there became a thing where okay, um, I'm going to lock this in. It's a take. You don't take a lot of chances. You play. You know, you move your little risk scale to about 70%, and then you go for it within the 70%. You don't try too many risky things. Punching in, punching out wasn't the the easy thing that it is today. Right. Because you're on an analog machine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, drummers were really trapped. You know, there's no way to punch out of a drum track. Uh, you might be able to tr- punch in the last part of it, but you know, we weren't recording to clicks, so yeah. that wasn't that easy either. Everyone really needed to get it pretty good, mm-hmm. especially the drums. You had to be and good. <laughs> had to be. You had yeah, to be good. yeah. That, those, those guys were uh, laying down perfect tracks yeah. with yeah. energy, take after take, mm-hmm. assisting them do that to to do that, even though we could make repairs. Like I say. Anything that took up extra time was not a great thing. So you dealt, you did develop a, a kind of a bulletproof now's the take approach that, uh, and, and I'm not sure what, uh, it's just a different gear that you have. Yeah. That, and uh, once you have experienced that, it sort of stays with you. No mm-hmm. matter what level your chops are, you can still kind of aim and hit where you need to. Yeah, exactly. You know, Rick was talking about, um, you know, with you about the 80s and 90s, those being the explosive, the golden years. And, you know, there was a portion, there was a time in, in the mid-70s that you were you were playing with David Gates and, and uh, with Bread. And um, and you were touring yeah. with him. And, and yeah. uh, I, I do want to bring this up because it's it's sort of important to, for people, our audience to know. But at that time, you met a young lady named Carol. To, and... Mm-hmm. Um, and she soon became. Uh, she, she she later on became your wife. And, Correct. Um, yeah. Rest in peace, Carol. I think she passed back in 2010. But yeah. the reason I want to talk about Carol a little bit is because she was in the music business. She had an incredible, amazing voice. And uh, some of our audience might remember some of the tunes that she sang as a as a background vocalist. It, it never rains in California. Undercover Angel, Rock Me Gently, remember the, the big tunes, Andy Williams, Tom yeah. Jones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was really, really good at her craft. Um, you know, let, take us some, uh, give us a little bit of, of, uh, of knowledge of, of Carol. And I mean, she was really, she came from a musical family too. Yeah, she did. Her, her mom, Vanjie Carmichael, mm-hmm. um, wife of Ralph Carmichael, mm-hmm. uh, Vanjie was like one of the top vocal contractors. And uh, she would contract all the vocals for, um, like the Andy Williams show, um, the Glenn Campbell show, the Sonny and Cher show, which was my first kind of big gig in in L.A. Mm-hmm. And um, so she was a, a major player in, in in and you know she I think she in, was in groups that sang with Ray Charles and all all those big hits where they were doing big L.A. studio records. Uh, her husband Ralph Carmichael. Arranged, for instance, uh, Nat King Cole's Christmas album mm-hmm. and uh, Lazy Hazy Day, Days of Summer with uh, Nat King Cole in, in those days. He was one of the revered uh, jazz orchestral arrangers of that period. It was amazing, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, then, then he uh, started concentrating more on gospel music and started a publishing company, Lexicon, that was... Uh, had most of the, uh, they I think they were converting uh, or expanding gospel music to include more elements of pop music. So he was uh, at the forefront of that movement as well. And so Carol came from that, and uh, you know had uh, experienced a lot of L.A. session stuff. Yeah, but she also was assistant uh, produced even for. Donald Fagan and Walter and, and Ricky Lee Jones too, right? Uh, yeah, she did uh, production yeah. assistant mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, book the musicians, the studios, uh, you know that that kind of stuff. Very cool. Yeah, she was uh, she was part of the music business too. Yeah. 
Hey, you know, Dean, a, a lot of our listeners are fil- familiar with the uh, CCM jazz band uh, Koinonia. And yeah. you were an original member of the band in 1980 with, you know, guys like an actual past uh, Inside Music Cast guests, mm-hmm. uh, Abe Laboreal and Alex Acuna. Also, John Phillips, Hadley Hawkinsmith, Harlan Rogers, and uh, also Bill Maxwell. Yeah, Bill. And yeah. that must have been a really fun gig while it lasted. I mean, these guys are still around today and some of the best in the business. Talk to us about working with uh, Koinonia. Oh, well, it was fantastic. I met the group Third Avenue Blues Band, which was Hadley, uh, Harlan, and Bill Maxwell Yeah, <laughs> uh, in Fort Worth. Uh, they really? had come through. Uh, I think T Bone Burnett had produced a thing with them. Anyway, I heard them. They're a fantastic band, just great. So I knew them when I moved to LA. Then they moved to LA. Um, we were friends, and I, I used to work with them on Andre Crouch records that uh, Bill Maxwell was producing. Yeah. Um, and so it's when they started a group to, to we were going to just play the baked potato every week, once a week, Mondays. Yeah. Um, so they asked me to come aboard, and for sure I wanted to do that. But that was a, an amazing band. Anyone who heard that band live, because there was a a southern rock pocket feel, and every player in the band did it naturally. Yeah. And for the whole band, seven guys to be doing that <laughs> in a small space like the baked potato, it yeah. was just like, uh, I mean, it was the biggest rollick you could have because it was, it felt free, but it was totally organized as well because everyone is disciplined and th- th- they don't put out extraneous stuff. Every Everything that every player was doing was essential to his part, but it was all in that big pocket. And uh, that was just a big pleasure to be a part of. Plus, it's all it was all original material. Everybody would bring yeah. in tunes, you know, at any point. Mm-hmm. Bring, bring in a chart. Everybody reads along. And uh, I don't know if we had, well, I, I think maybe sound checks at those setups were maybe our only rehearsals. Uh, we had a couple of rehearsals before we, ever did the gig but uh, right. from then on it was uh you know see to your pants let's let's go but that was great <laughs> it was every monday baked potato totally great yeah fun stuff it's it's cool how that club has endured and it's still the oh, place to go you know it, is. <laughs> it, it still is a good place for music for, yeah that's for sure i'm gonna do a night with uh, greg matheson uh, oh yeah january january sometime i think january, oh, cool. february we need to go out there for or that. April maybe I don't I don't remember but anyway it'll be you'll see it you'll it'll pop up on the ads we've we've had Greg on the show before a long time ago yeah. he's fun oh, he's like, a fun guy man no he's a great guy <laughs> well, another another guy we've had on the show is uh, David Foster and that was a that was a fun one for us and you know over the over the years you know so many guys like David you know great producers and artists have called you to play. On records, uh-huh. and you know, from your perspective and experience, when you get that call, why do you think they want, or what is it they want from Dean Parks when they hire you? Uh, you know, it's there's so many different jobs in this job. It could be one hmm. of of many things. It could be that for David, when I was doing a lot of acoustic guitar work for him, mm-hmm. he would play a sampled acoustic. And I could figure out how to play it on acoustic. Um, he would write out a part, and yeah. uh, you know, sometimes there were too many notes for one little set of hands, and we'd I'd kind of split it up into mm-hmm. a second part. That anyway, just that whole process of how to get his uh, part exactly with the real feel, you know. And I think the feel, uh, rhythm feel, is probably another reason that um, you know something that I bring to the table that. Uh, you know that uh, is dependable enough that people will depend on it. But but sometimes it's uh, they want uh, an original approach. You know the songs can be similar to other songs, but you can make a, a little hook that makes it not so similar or makes it a unique thing. And players can do that, and sometimes I do that as well. Yeah. Um, 
you know, something that you haven't heard before. Like when I, it was fun in the days working with Larry Carlton. He he was like the, of course, the best guitar player I'd ever heard. And uh, to sit next to him and come up with parts with him, you know, they were usually two guitars on a session. We would mm-hmm. split the duties spontaneously, and we would talk. And he was him and Louis Shelton and and me would also be analyzing the latest. Uh, record on the radio midnight at the oasis uh <laughs> you know uh that fantastic uh guitar part yeah. was uh, something yeah. that we all were fans of Graydon jay Graydon yeah was a big fan of it i think that's a lot of his his opening on uh, uh his solo on peg mm-hmm. was basically the uh, amos garrett midnight on the oasis lick which was bending two strings a full step which was usually not a thing that we had ever done before he did it. Hmm. Uh, when you bend those two strings, the strings have a different tension, and one bends up a half step and the other bends up a step. Wow. Holy cow. But this one, both were up a whole step, so you had to mm-hmm. dial in more tension on the you know, the, the second string than you did on the third string. So that was a thing we always sort of horsed around with <laughs> in between takes. That's but, really cool. Uh, I mean, now that you mentioned that, now I've never heard that before. So now I'm going to go compare yeah, those. No. Two. I'm going to listen to those now, back now, to back. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now no, every geek listening, is everybody listening is going to do that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's that'll be a very entertaining listen. Um, Interesting. But yeah, that uh, inventing new things. Uh, you know, Steely Dan uh, sessions, for instance. Sometimes I would play. They would want me to play a rhythm acoustic because I could kind of take these complex chords and make a simple, easy ringing uh, acoustic part out of Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. And uh, it would just sort of glue the rhythm section together in a a way. Uh, So sometimes I did that for them, or sometimes I would come in and come up with the quirky stuff too. You kind of know with various clients and various collaborators what they expected from a session and bring that uh, element. You know, if it's perfection, then you help them mm-hmm. get perfection. If it's spontaneity, then you help them get spontaneity. And usually the ones that want spontaneity are not the ones that want perfection. You know, they, yeah. and there's a, it's a sliding scale, of course. Pro Tools actually makes that adventurous part an easier thing to do because you have infinite tracks, you have no problem doing a, a spot overdub or fix yeah, or just keep banging away on this one problem little set of chord changes during a solo until something nice comes out and mm-hmm. then you know make justify that with what comes next although we did we did that sort of thing constructing a solo i kind of call that kind of soloing um you're composing a solo yeah and uh, you're composing a performance because you still it still needs to come off in a spontaneous way, right? True. That, yeah. uh, tr- which is true of an orchestral musician yeah. reading a, a woodwind solo in a in the middle of a symphony. It needs to it's it it's coming from your heart, and you can't just because you're reading the notes you can't let it sound like you're gridding. You yeah. know, you're just playing the notes on a grid. Mm-hmm. You know, while you're talking about, you know, you're talking about the composition of the solo. I mean, yeah, you mm-hmm. can you can ad lib, you can improvise that type of thing. But at this level of of, of records, like for, with Steely Dan, okay, in the body of work that these guys have done over the, you know, we've heard so many. And to your point, with even in Larry, you know, so many iconic guitar solos that they've really become legendary. For instance, like Larry's, of course, um, what is it, Kid Charlemagne, right? Yeah, that one's, yeah, that yeah, one's like, that's... that's magic. Skunk Baxter's Ricky, uh, Don't Lose That Number. Um, Reeling in the Years, that was Elliot Randall, and then you have Denny Diaz with Bodhisattva. You, you already mentioned Jay Graydon's Peg, but, uh, yeah. and that leaves us with Haitian Divorce, and that's your solo from Royal Scam. And, Talk to us a little bit about the the solo, and maybe you know, talk us through, backtrack a little bit to the previous sentence that you you had about composing and what your what you were. Did you have to play over and over? Were you composing that um, that solo for for Haitian that's divorce? That's a that's a good uh, 
That's a good, uh, maybe that's a bad example because most of that solo came uh, spontaneously. It was an overdub. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wasn't planned to be on the song. I came in to say hello. I was in the same studio. Yeah. Um, and they were in a different studio in the same building. And I just came in to say hello and they would just finish track. Bernard Purdy, Larry Carlton, Chuck Rainey, and I, probably Michael Martian. Um, and uh, they were just going to listen to the playback, and I listened with them, and then they were going to do another song, reggae tune, and Larry said, hey, you want to play on this? You can play my guitar. <laughs> and I said, well, sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, that, so I played I played the track of Haitian Divorce uh, uh -huh. on Larry's guitar, the little reggae part. Oh, cool. And then they called me back a different day, and uh, I sat up in the booth and uh, did the overdub on on um, Haitian divorce. Uh, so I was familiar with the song and I was familiar with the little chord chart. And um, they were recording, they were using magnaplanar electrostatic speakers as playback speakers in the room in those days, which was, a, I don't know if you've heard those, but it's yeah. like uh, super hi-fi in, mm -hmm. in the most pleasing way. Um so that's what, how I was listening. You know, it wasn't in headphones or anything. Mm -hmm. They did have a little signature lick, which uh, the little intro. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I recall we did stop when that solo I thing came back because I didn't remember exactly what it was and punched in at that part. But I think the rest of the solo was kind of miraculously all right the way it was yeah didn't walter also didn't walter do inject that the the voice box sound? yeah he I did mean, he, he did i mean they already knew they wanted to do that and, really and walter said you know you want to do it or i can do it later <laughs> if you want i said hey you go you do it later right i didn't want to do that while i'm while i was playing so i just played uh you know uh, 335 through a cranked up princeton um reverb amp and uh did a you know a solo sound and then he did the blah blah part later yeah it's with, great with yeah that was that was fun but uh i still want to know who babs and clean willie are <laughs> <laughs> who are they who are they well you know <laughs> yeah right <laughs> it, i think it was basically uh, a friend they knew uh-huh um got romantically involved with a wildcat and had to unwind it quickly and that's that was their their song was about that <laughs> okay <laughs> and there you go rick <laughs> there we go. All right. but totally fun song <laughs> you know every time i hear it it's just the and of course their lyrics anyway you know they take you down a path but that particular one was is, is one quirky. of my favorites <laughs> so know. that was probably least uh composed but here's a here's solo that was kind of co-composed me uh david foster producing uh, and I was playing nylon overdub on uh, Unbreak My Heart okay. with Tony yeah. Braxton yeah. yeah and so that little solo was uh, a matter of me playing through it once or twice and then being a really great start then then David would have an idea about the next what would be better on a second lick and we would build it, I would play his idea, and then maybe I'd continue and have another idea, and he would really like that, and then, you know, then maybe it falls off in quality as the solo goes, and we decide on a good punch-in spot. And on hearing it back, I can hear, oh, I, this is a good place for it to go. Because sometimes when you're in the heat of battle, you're, you're zoomed so far in, you're not uh, able to hear it as a listener. If you listen to it back, uh, you can say, oh, yeah, obviously it needs, why not just have a little space there and then come in with an answer to a theme that yeah. was earlier, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it becomes uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A both a collaboration and a composition, um, but it's made up of improvised parts. Sure. Yeah. Because, because you know, for instance, when he comes up with a good second lick, uh, that would be an answer to my first lick. That's improvised in a way too. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's on the 
nothing he had ever thought of before. Right. He didn't write it down a week before. It's mm-hmm. improvised. So I, I, I think that's a, actually kind of a valid art form. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The and I'm I'm sure a lot of big groups have probably used that technique of uh, constructing a solo. Mm-hmm. You know, making it a, making it a making it a composition, making right. sure it pays off. Yeah. But oh. sometimes you get lucky on that with your, you know, your chops are up, the, you know the song, yeah, uh, you know where it's going, and you get an inspiration, and you, you do wail away, and it ends up being just great from beginning to end. Uh, that's fun too. But uh, I, I guess one one of the things you also try to figure out along the way is how perfection oriented are they? Do, if I had a little little rough spot in the track do i bring it up and repair it and take that time yeah. or mm-hmm. do i let it go you know if they never hear it maybe they'll never hear it maybe they'll solo it maybe they'll hear it and it'll be bad for your career right maybe <laughs> yeah all those things are going through your head yeah, right. because uh, as, as the old uh, t-shirt from the 70s uh Read, uh, you're only as good as your last session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a brutal world in, right. in there. Um, there's other guitar players, and mm-hmm. uh, very all eager, eager to take the spot. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you kind of have to figure that out. And, and uh, at some point, I just figure out you have to step up to the plate and say, "Hey, we got a little greenie of, over there," and uh, you know, first half of bar forty three. Yeah. Just get me in, get me out. In the in the analog days, the analog tape days, that was a part of an engineer's job right. is to understand music well enough to punch you in on end of two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, knowing that the machine is not really going to record immediately, it ramps up because you first of all you there's an erase head that's a distance from yeah. the record head, and every brand has its own speed of ramping up to where it actually is recording so he has to anticipate that as well so and then to get out so that you don't lose the precious part that everyone has signed off on you know it's it wasn't a casual thing to make a repair but it was ongoing it happened all the time yeah so so that's a part of engineering that uh, is not so necessary now you can miss the punch in by a mile and just fold back the right that's the part it. and it's yeah we touched on Steely Dan a second ago, and you know Eddie and I, we, we're looking back at our guest list, and we've had so many guys that have been involved uh, with Steely Dan on our show in the past. We've had guys like Gary Katz and Bernard Purdy, John uh-huh. Harrington. We've had Chuck Rainey and Michael Lombardi and Steve Kahn, Greg Fillingaines, Freddie Washington, Jay Graydon, and a few others. And you know, many of these guys knew that Donald and Walter would know you know, know the part when they when they heard it kind of process. And so because we all know that they oftentimes called several players to play the same parts. And, you know, what are your observations about that looking back, especially working with those guys? Yeah, it's a, you know, it wasn't a very consistent policy on their part. It's just that they were <laughs> willing to do it. Uh, my, yeah. my own uh, reverse engineering uh, justification for their willingness to go there is that uh, the – Financial construction of an artist and a recording session is that he's paying for it, even though he doesn't come out of his pocket. The company's fronting yeah. the money, but you, the artist owes it out of record sales. And uh, that's when an album has paid off its whole budget, then it's recouped, and then the artist starts making money after that point. So most artists are completely on board with the producer about you know keeping the cost down. But these guys were writing every song. They were getting a separate stream of income, which had, which was basically two streams because airplay. They were getting tons of airplay and uh, record sales, and they were both getting money off of that, no matter what the budget had been. So I think that they weren't as tied to the budget as anyone else in the process was, and they were freer to, yeah, let's just do another session on that song, and try it with a different rhythm section mm-hmm. so I, I didn't see it happen that much i know that the their story on peg is that it was done a bunch of times yeah i think uh, like on peg it was seven guitarists total <laughs> and uh six prior to that before they 
landed on Graydon. Yeah, I don't, they didn't. They didn't move on past it. Past when they got Graydon. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's interesting because they have to decide to erase those tracks. It's analog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Then on their comeback album, which was a Two Against Nature, we they flew us to New York, and the core rhythm section was a couple of New York guys, uh, uh, Tom Barney on bass and. Um, Ted Baker on keyboard, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. and then me and Paul Jackson on guitars, and then we were booked for three weeks. But they booked be, be week one with one drummer, week two with another drummer, and week <laughs> three with another drummer, and we basically recorded the whole album three times oh my gosh. with these mm-hmm. three drummers. And we had heard that a couple of months before they had done the same process with different core rhythm wow. section and three different drummers than those so uh, that's the most uh, extreme uh, use of that idea I think is in that uh, set of sessions I guess they did it uh, all along but uh, I think they they were just trying to get the best thing yeah and I think that that album won them a, a Grammy too I think uh, it did yeah <laughs> yeah it did. They, all the uh, people that were fans were glad they, yeah. who were voting mm-hmm. in the Academy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. right. had already been fans. I was so glad to see him come back. But I thought it was a great album as well. Yeah, it was. It was really good. Hey, Dean, you, in 74, you played on um, Pretzel Logic. And this is the, the year where Skunk um, left the band and Walter and, and – um, and Donald's, you know, stopped really performing live. They just just went totally into the studio, and yeah. um, and that's when you began playing for them first. You know, on that first connection with these guys, was it uh, a reference that you had, or was it Larry that pointed you to him, or did they, how did the call come to? I think that um, I think that Michael Martian uh, was called to lead the rhythm section. Really, uh, he's a keyboard player, and he did the yeah. rhythm charts. So I think he called the band. Uh, you know, of course, Gary Katz's office uh, called the band. But that, what I mean is that the the list came from Omar, and uh, we were there because uh, he wanted us there. Rick Derringer was on the session too, though, and none of us had known him. Oh, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, the, that first album that was uh, Jim Gordon and me and mm-hmm. uh, Chuck Rainey, mm-hmm. Rick Derringer and me, I guess, on guitars. Hmm. I guess. Yeah, yeah. So that was their first record using studio players as their core rhythm section. And the Denny Diaz was there, and so was Skunk Baxter. He, he was there on the session. They really? were hanging out and listening and uh, chiming in on what the good take was and, you know, yeah. suggesting, parts to pe- suggesting parts to people, I guess, when the time came. But they, they, yeah. were, they, they didn't pitch in too much. I don't know if it was clear to everyone at that point that they were going to use that as their mode from then on yeah i know their drummer had passed away so maybe that was the reason they started bringing on other players Mm -hmm. um i think they're just fan of studio players and wanted to have that fun yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah one one last question regarding steely dan and we'll move on but um you know so you played on katie lyden 75 royal scam 76 asia 77 and then of course in 2002 against nature um You know, from a collaborator's perspective, okay, tell us what you notice. Look back and, and tell us what you notice about regarding the, let's say, the evolution, if you want to just phrase it that way, the evolution of Donald and Walter's music over those albums, over those decades. I mean, th- what kind of an evolution did you see sonically and what, what they were doing? Did they change their process? Were there certain lines that you noticed in the sand that said, no, they started doing things different on this album? Or I mean, because you were so close to it. Is, is that unreasonable to ask? If yeah, I, uh, I did see pieces of all of those albums. You know, I look at more of as a consistency. Mm. The first time we worked for them, they were already a hit, you know, uh, Do It Again, Reeling in the Years. That was all stuff they did when it was still a group. The group was recording everything. So we knew, uh, we were glad to be in on something that we knew uh, was of quality. But, you know, you hear Ricky Don't Lose That Number and uh, and you hear Hey 19, or are they that different in, in uh, yeah. depth mm-hmm. or interest or... I think every song was 
they were focused already. I can't say I didn't. I don't think it evolved because uh, every they kept everything fresh. You know, it got it. Kept, it's kept being good is the way I look at it, rather than kept it got better. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Hey, recently uh, we want to talk to you about a, a new project that's sort of, I mean, you know, jumping way ahead <laughs> to 2022, the end of it. You know, uh, it's a project that you did with a few guys, and you guys posted a, a you know, a video just recently on on social media last month, and and uh, it's called Toxic Vegan, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the track was great. Oh God, yeah. it just you know, and, and the track that is was called, a, that that was a Dylan O'Brien. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that is his yeah. and uh, Steve Lindsay yeah. uh, started a, a record label that's Destination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's f- for licensings. He makes stems available, and uh, all of the songs are original. But the idea was to make it Steely Dan <laughs> type music. Right. And right. Uh, Dylan just uh, nailed it. I mean, every song. Yeah. It could have been a Steely song. It, it really and, could have. And uh, the production is got the same kind of quirkiness, <laughs> but the same kind of smoothness. Oh yeah. And we are all fans, and so everyone aboard enjoyed contributing what they thought a uh, appropriate slant would be to all of those. Yeah, yeah. Parts. I mean, the the track is called Robo Girl, and uh, if you haven't heard it out <laughs> yeah. there, audience, it, it's just funny because it's, you know, I mean, you've got some big powerhouses, nine guys, I guess, Freddie Washington, we've had him on, on the show, yeah. Jim yeah. Beard, Alex Acuna, John Beasley, and of course, Bernie Dressel, and uh, Dan Higgins, and of course, uh, uh, Dylan and, and Steve. Uh, yeah. But I must say, you know, it's that your solo it's it's beautiful. It's it's really nice. Yeah. Now, no, thanks. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Improvised or written or I mean, how how did you create not, not that? Not written, one? not no? written, but um, one of those composed. Yeah, you know, I I improvised it. Uh, actually, now that I think about it, it might be like the third take of a of a try the solo. Yeah. Event, you know. <laughs> it was great. I think I think it was kind of like that, and there might be a spot where. Maybe I punched in the end part, mm-hmm. the octaves part, or pun- found a good spot to to punch in so that yeah. it finished in a. <laughs> well, you were good a, on camera too. I mean, you were having a fun time. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, was, here's Dean Parks, who nobody ever gets to see because you're behind the radar, behind every <laughs> liner notes. You know, nobody gets to see you, and all of a sudden you're here. That's Dean Parks out in the center, out in the open, <laughs> mugging, mugging for a video crew. That was a silly day, and of course. Of course, I couldn't memorize the solo, yeah. and so I was—I uh, I had tried to memorize part of it, and it, <laughs> at some point, it was uh, too complex to yeah. Uh, yeah. to yeah. Uh, digest. So I and, and kudos out to Freddie Washington. He was—he was sure uh, chiming it up, man. He was he pretty pretty <laughs> funny out there. But uh, I know. Anyway, yeah, that, that sounded like a great project, and you had—you must have had some fun with some good guys. It, w- it was great fun. Yeah, <laughs> I did a, another uh, uh, project with that uh, company. And it was sort of a fake Django album, <laughs> and uh, started getting a lot of the, this Stanley Tucci's uh, Italy. Really? Started using a, a couple of the tunes as uh, oh really as walking music, you know? Oh, as, cool. Yeah, uh, little Django kind of things. They kind of use pieces of it on every episode. I've got actually, we're going to do another one of those albums because they're oh, cool. reusing stuff, so yeah. they could probably use some fresh stuff. And you know, that's one one place the. Where money is still rolling into the music sure. business, there's a, yeah. there's a stream. So yeah. that, that's a fun to fun to play out uh, well, that kind of thing. You know, over the last hour, I feel like we've 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 talked so much about you know a lot of your career, but there's so much we haven't talked about. But you know, if if you think back over the the breadth of your career, you know, you've accomplished so much, and you've added your signature style to a variety of some of the biggest albums ever made, not to mention, you know, work you've done for film. Yeah. And with that in mind, do you feel like, you know, you've accomplished everything you set out to do, or is there maybe a musical avenue that has eluded you that you'd still like to explore? Well, uh, that's an interesting thought. I've been thinking of uh, maybe for this same uh, label that puts up the licensing stems uh-huh. doing an instrumental album I've been a, always been uh, a fan of instrumental music uh, 
I started the little group I did was with in Texas. We did Dwayne Eddy, uh, all the surf tunes, you know, Wipeout, Roy Clark, instrumentals, just all all the instrumentals, you know, till till the Beatles and Birds came along and we st- decided to go ahead and start singing. Yeah, it was all the <laughs> instrumental hits, and you could have a hit back then on instrumentals. Oh yeah, yeah, and and I. You know, and as far as uh, use in films and TV shows, you could definitely pull stuff out of an instrumental that would uh, be fun. So I, I was just thinking of uh, collaborating with myself as a composer and a an arranger, and I've got a pretty good handle on, you know, the digital audio workstation uh, environment. Uh, just doing a doing a solo record of instrumentals and. Uh, and I think I think I'm going to start on that in the next year. That's very cool. Very cool. Keep us posted on that. Yeah. Well, speaking of you know what's happening in 2023, and obviously we're in the new year. What are you working on now, and and what does 2023 have in store for you? Have you have you already started working on that instrumental project, or do you have some uh, other things? I've in got the uh, well, I've got uh, seven songs in the bag on that. Uh, I've got to make good charts on those, and then we'll call a session and do that in a couple of days. So that's. That's a one little thing. Uh-huh. Uh, as far as other projects on the books, let me look and see what I got going. I've got one in a couple of weeks f- with uh, Diane Warren. Oh, um, cool. a, s- a song of hers, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a couple of sessions, so I'm sorry I'm not totally up to speed on what that is, but that's <laughs> that's, okay. that's going to be fun to do. A, you know, real tracking yeah. with a real real players. I Absolutely, enjoy those. I've been playing a little bit in the big band uh, that Seth McFarlane uh, p- put together. Plays oh, cool. a lot of old Sinatra charts, and I'm I'm in the Freddie Green chair of that, which is kind of a thing that I enjoy doing with that's there's a cool. few little jazz solos to do. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, not a recording thing; that's more of a live thing. He does mm-hmm. live gigs around town with that, but it's always with the best players, a big band format. Sure, very nice. Um, yeah, I'm going to be doing some parts on some a theremin synthesist, Shuili Ong, and uh, so that's we've got one little track in the in the can on that, and, I'm, and those are she's in Singapore, and I'm going to be doing that. Yeah, at home. Sounds like a cool project. Yeah, that'll that'll be fun to do. Um, that little baked potato gig with Greg will be fun to do. His son is the drummer on that. He said he's really great, so mm-hmm. it'll mm-hmm. be fun to do. And I think Travis Carlton will be on bass. Oh, cool! Really? That's nice. Well, it sounds like you you're busy. You've got stuff. You've yeah. got a lot of you got a lot of happening. Yeah, Carrie Kirkland. We did an album with her last year. She's a great jazz singer. Uh, Shelley Berg was on mm-hmm. keyboards. Uh, Kevin Axt on bass. Um, Peter Erskine on drums. And we're going to do a a little live gig. Uh, Supporting that album at uh, Catalina. Cool. And then other stuff, it just comes up, you know, a week in advance. Sure. But it, it's it's nice that the tracking sessions are coming back a little bit. Everybody's a little looser on the COVID restrictions. Yeah. I was yeah. going to ask you about that. Is, uh, you know, yeah. is, is there, are the restrictions coming down? People are, I bet you they're just dying to see themselves face to face, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's fun to play with players. Um, and there's been a few of those sessions and it's we just finished one with uh, Brett McKenzie he was part of the uh, oh yeah the uh, flight of the concords yeah flight of the concords yeah and me uh, Lee Sk- Lee Sklar mm-hmm. um, Chris Caswell nice um, yeah Joey Warnker did a couple of albums for for Brett and uh, that was totally fun and that that was kind of in the times when gatherings were few and far between uh-huh. you know and those studios have their protocol you test the day before and that kind of stuff sure but i think that stuff's getting looser and looser as more people have uh, contracted and survived right yeah the disease so mm-hmm. well very cool well dean this has been a, a really awesome chat we're so glad to have you on the show and um and you know we hope to as we tell everyone we want to stay in touch and uh you know figure out what you're doing down the road and we'll be sure to let our audience know as well okay no doubt great so well, it was a fun yeah. it was a fun uh, bunch of questions well thank you, you. Have, happy uh, new year <laughs> yeah happy new year <laughs> Whoa, <Dean>. yay <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks, Dean. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Dean Parks for joining us on this episode of Inside MusicCast. We also want to thank our Inside MusicCast correspondents for their support and dedication, including Brian Pearson in Chicago, Kim Riley in South Florida, Scott Gross in Tampa, Mikhail Ingstrom in Stockholm, Scott Sheriff in Nashville, Don Brightup in Los Angeles, Loretta Sassaman in Seattle, Yinka Oyelese in New Jersey, and Arnaud Legere in Paris. Now you can show your support for Inside MusicCast by making a donation at InsideMusicCast.com. Your donation will help us to continue producing future episodes of Inside MusicCast and keep Inside MusicCast radio streaming 24-7. You can also receive special Inside MusicCast merch, such as t-shirts, masks, stickers, and coasters for your support at various levels. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thank you for your support of Inside MusicCast. Inside MusicCast.